Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Schriever Space Power Series. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies Space Advantage Center of Excellence. We've seen the unprecedented growth of the Space Force over the past three years and how the service is rapidly adapting to confront the shift in space from a benign domain to a competitive operating environment. And today we are pleased to have with us General David D.T. Thompson who, to share his experiences and help us understand how the Space Force is maturing as an organization and responding to these changes. Serving as the Vice Chief of Space Operations under both Generals Raymond and Saltzman, General Thompson assists the Chief of Space Operations with organizing, training, and equipping the U.S. Space Force, integrating space policy, and coordinating space activity between the Space Force and Department of the Air Force. And I'd like to take just a moment here, DT, to thank you for your many years of service, not only as a Air Force officer and now a Space Force officer, but in particular since 2005, where I've noted that you've been vice commander or vice chief for multiple organizations, whether it been Air Force Space Command, U.S. Space Command, and now the Space Force. And having worked in the Pentagon myself under various vice chiefs, I know all too well how difficult that job is. And for anyone to sustain themselves in that position for eight consecutive years is a testament not only to your dedication, but also to the trust that people have had in you over the years to do the hard work of a vice, which includes, of course, developing the annual budget, bringing together all the various organizations, whether they be requirement writers or operators uh, and the budgeteers, to put together a program for the Space Force that will be executable in the years to come and help develop this force that we so desperately need in America. So on a personal note, DT, I want to thank you for your years of dedicated service and all the great things you've done to not only stand up the Space Force, but posture for the future. Well, General Chilton, thanks so much for that. And uh, I guess I can say I'm pretty experienced at being a vice. I don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> or, or not, but it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's tough work, and thank you for that. And to start the forum off this morning, I'd like to give you the floor to any opening remarks you'd like to make. Okay, uh, uh, thanks, sir. Thanks very much. Just a few, if I can. I'd really like to get to the the discussion more quickly than not. But but I would say, as a way of opening a remark, um, I would say we are very much uh, uh, clearly in the next chapter of the Space Force. Um, and it's reflected, I think, by two very powerful leaders. Clearly, the first three years, uh, led by General Raymond, were what we called the establishment phase of the Space Force, did a whole lot in terms of the blueprint for the force, making sure the force was resourced, getting some of the foundational uh, functions and roles and responsibilities in place. Uh, General Chance Saltzman, with his ascension to, to the Chief of Space Operations here in November, uh, is building on that foundation, but made it very clear now that, that the, the mission of the Space Force is to deliver deliver on forces, deliver on capabilities, and, and the promises that we've made as part of the establishment. Uh, his lines of effort outline that clearly with uh, building and presenting combat-ready forces. That's not just a question of new missions and capabilities. It's advanced training. It's a test and training enterprise that really makes sure that we're ready for uh, to deliver warfighting capabilities, not just the things we have to do to let folks operate every single day. The second is really, really now start working again on uh, what it means to be a guardian. You know, we came in with this idea of, of we had the opportunity with a clean sheet of paper to define what a guardian is. It was a wonderful idea, but none of us really joined the Space Force as a clean sheet. Um, we all came with our culture, and that was good, but now it's time to take those cultures, merge them, and out of them forward, really, what we think it means to be a guardian, and that's his second of amplifying that spirit. Mm -hmm. And then the, finally, the final one, really, is those partnerships. We've had some tremendous, long-standing partnerships that we've worked to strengthen with, um, uh, with the Joint Force, with the intelligence community, with NASA and some of the civil agencies, and certainly our partners. We've had to, to do some redefinition of those, but also creating our own partnerships with the other services, with combat commands, um, as a force has certainly been that third, that third piece. And so he has led us in that regard. But what I also don't want to understate, um, and I hope people realize, is the second powerful leader we've had join 
which is uh, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Integration and Acquisitions, which is uh, Secretary Frank Cavelli. Um, he has brought for us perspective and insight and, and, and a real change to how we look at uh, space acquisition, um, focusing on simplifying it, delivering, uh, uh, meeting our promises in terms of the capabilities we deliver on time and on mm -hmm. cost. And I would also like to make it clear that we can understate the uh, importance of his role and the difference he's made in a short time as well. Great. You also have a great champion in the secretary. Yes, sir, we absolutely do. With his operational imperatives. I mean, That's space right. was highlighted right up there. It, it is. It is. And in, in fact, um, uh, I would say that, that he is probably, as the entire department focuses on, on, on China and the challenge there, and clearly, Secretary Austin has said that's the pacing challenge. I don't know that there is a senior leader in the Pentagon who is more focused on what um, what the nation needs to do, what the Department of Defense needs to do, and his personal mission to ensure that the Air and Space Forces deliver the capabilities they need to that we need to deter first. But if it comes to that, and fight and win in a, in an environment like that. That's great. Maybe a poor analogy, but when I think about over General Raymond's term and now General Saltzman starting, it's kind of like a track team. You got to form the team. You got to get them uniforms. You got to make sure they're a team working together. That's kind of the culture change. And then you got to pound in the starting blocks. And when they and now the gun's gone off. Sure. It's kind of the second term. Uh, General Raymond did a great job not doing that exclusively. He was doing everything in parallel. But it's I seem to see a shift in focus from, as you say, the establishment. Um, you're never going to stop working culture. Right. Uh, but it's it's time now to catch up with the rest of the field who hasn't stopped running the whole time we've been standing up the force. Is that a fair kind of growth analogy? That is, that is. And um, and I think many, you know, many of our partners now recognize that, yeah, we're on the track and running and, and uh, uh, we need to, we need, they recognize we're part of the team and, and they are starting to understand not only our contributions, but the demands they can and should place on us in terms of, of, of being part of the force. Right, terrific. You know, uh, of course, even going back when there was an Air Force Base Command, one of the things that that command had to do was develop capabilities that really enabled the joint force and present those capabilities. And they did it exceptionally well. You still have to do that. But one of the big changes is because it's now a threat environment, whereas before it was pretty benign, uh, you decided, the Space Force has decided rightfully so, I think, to re-architect how we provide those uh, enabling capabilities for the joint fight because we've become so dependent on them. Uh, the prol proliferated architecture uh, to create, as part of a strategy to create a more resilient capability in space has been one of the focus areas. Um, are there other concepts and force designs that you're working toward to shape it for the long term that will continue to en enhance those capabilities that everybody else needs? Uh, absolutely. Um, as you referenced, I think one of the one of those things that we did as part of the establishment phase, although although should have done it perhaps uh, before that, and certainly would have done it without a space force, is bring a much deeper analytic under, underpinning to what those capabilities and and forces should look like. The space warfighting analysis now mm -hmm. does what we've been calling force design, what the architectures and capabilities should look like based in analytics, based in realistic threat models, uh, trading off, you know, uh, thousands and tens of thousands, and in fact, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of design variations based on performance, based on cost, and based on survivability. And uh, the very first uh, uh, design they, they uh, provided was for a missile warning missile track, mm -hmm. which we're in the middle of implementing and uh, uh, the second was really uh, uh, ground-moving target indication, which was a basis of a lot of investment in the 24 budget. Um, they have now finished the, the first phases of uh, the design for space data relay, transport, and communications to take really what have been stovepipe capabilities, whether you talk about them in bands or types of services. We've always thought of them in, in individual uh, stovepipe capabilities, but really link them together in a way uh, that ensures we'll be able to fight in the future. Um, so we did some work on that last year, really finished it and made it investment ready so that we can invest more heavily as part of this this uh, 25 budget cycle. Um, they have just kicked off the latest design for what will be the next generation of positioning, navigation, and timing. GPS has been the gold standard for decades. It is still there and will be there 
for many, many years to come, but we've started the design for what will follow it, um, as well as they've laid out for every mission area when those course designs will be coming in future years. We'll, we'll be revisiting space domain awareness here shortly, um, go through some of the other elements, including uh, how we do command and control uh, and satellite uh, commanding. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is now the standard by which not only we do the development of capabilities and what those those forces and, and uh, architecture should look like, but others are now looking at it as perhaps an exemplar for that. Great, and that organization's referred to as SWAC. SWAC, Space right. War Fighting and Analysis, Analysis Center. Center. Right, uh, and, and Andrew Cox and leads sir, that. Mr. Andrew Cox yes. is the lead. There's a whole lot of Mountain Colorado Springs, but they're also distributed around the country. Mm -hmm. They've got offices here and in other places. And it's not just that organization, but how they've drawn in and connected with the rest of the force with industry and others that really has made it sounds like they've really grown over the years from when they were first stood up. they have they have they now have um they started looking very focused on the security and defense mm -hmm. of our space assets and they've they've now grown to all missionary it's great it sounds like a great capability it is absolutely now i confess i was a bit of a skeptic years ago when we talked about um originally talked about proliferating and disaggregation because I thought the business case would never close and we'd never get enough money to do it because of the cost of launch and the cost of satellites. But those two technologies, there's been technological breakthroughs in both and perhaps business breakthroughs that, that really are, I think, are and key enablers to the whole concept uh, that you guys are implementing now. Would you agree? I, I do. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I think you're exactly right. Both, I think, uh, I would call them for now evolutions in launch, yeah. very yeah. remarkable evolutions mm -hmm. in launch, but I think really a revolution in small satellites, mm -hmm. I would say finally uh, 20th century approach to the mass production of satellites and, and, and on our way to 21st century production techniques um, where we don't, you know, uh, for years we built satellites the way coach builders built cars in the early 1900s. You know, they are incredibly sophisticated, incredibly complex. They were mm -hmm. jewels. Uh, but they were also uh, incredibly expensive and unaffordable for all, but the most wealthy now we're really in mass production, and I think that's enabled what we're seeing in that regard. And I hope what will be a further proliferation of capability and, and cost reduction. Great. Um, let me switch to, you know, we've heard we don't want a space Pearl Harbor, you know, said over the years. So it's really an issue about avoiding operational or even strategic surprise in the space domain. And today we see, you know, cyber attacks. We saw those executed at the beginning of the Ukrainian war in Europe against a commercial company. We see ro satellites with robotic arms that can grapple satellites and move them out of their orbit being tested. Uh, direct ascent, uh, we've seen since 2007, that capability being fielded. Um, how does the Space Force plan to avoid operational surprise, both for uh, on the ground, threats to ground assets as well as on orbit assets, and including cyberspace as, as you go forward? Well, I think one of the, the first and most important areas is what was probably, uh, when we created the Space Force, one of the largest gaps that we had, which was a space intelligence enterprise that was operationally and tactically focused. We had for years had what I would call a strategic intelligence, uh, space intelligence enterprise in um, in the National Air and Space Intelligence Center mm -hmm. and, and other parts of the intelligence community, uh, which was very good in that regard. But but um, really building the space, making the Space Force the 18th member of the intelligence community, uh, putting an increased demand signal, not just in what the, uh, the capabilities that were being developed in their technical aspects, but uh, what was their doctrine? What's their training? How do they intend to employ them? How how might we develop our own tactics against them? And I think that is probably the first thing that we needed mm -hmm. to do and are doing well. Um, the second is a new understanding of space domain awareness, right? Truly thinking more carefully about what it means to fully understand what's happening in the domain, especially a threat-focused perspective on space domain mm -hmm. awareness. Yeah, as you know, for years, we've been responsible for managing the traffic in space. Somebody had to do it. We right. were capable and we did. Uh, now it's time to, to shift that responsibility to others so we can focus really really on the threats. And then the third is, and as you noted, the threats in and through other domains, building our own cyber defense forces, you know, just as the forces that operate in other domains, the other services, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and Marines have cyber defense forces and, and contribute to cyber command. Building those as well, I think, helps. So 
So I think those have, we have gotten to the point where we now have the tools, they're there, they're either in place or, or building up if we're operationally or strategically surprised, shame on us. Got it. Well, the U.S. Um, combatant commander at U.S. Space Command has put space domain awareness very high on yeah. his priority list. And, um, you know, to deter someone, one of the key fundamentals is you have to be able to attribute bad behavior. Otherwise, they'll feel they can get away with it and they won't be deterred. Uh, that's that's a, certainly an element of, of the domain awareness as well. Would you agree? Uh, it is. And... And I do appreciate, um, um, as you know, we've grown up in, we grew up in an era where many, many things were secret and perhaps for good reason, mm -hmm. but we're having, we, we were still struggling a bit with uh, breaking through those shackles from, from, from that era. But starting in uh, uh, 2020 and subsequently uh, with uh, the first U.S. Space Command Commander and now the current Space Command Commander starting to call out nations and their bad behavior. Um, with the, the Russian launch and, and uh, uh, unprofessional, unsafe, and frankly hostile maneuvering around some of our assets back then, uh, specifically focusing on um, uh, the vice president making comments about how people should and shouldn't conduct opera, you know, tests in space. I think those are the sorts of things that help us in that regard, calling out those sorts of behavior and making sure that, that people understand we can and will observe and attribute those sorts of things. Yeah, I thought one of the things General Shelton did when he was the commander of Air Force Base Command by advocating for the declassification of the GSAP series of satellites, which are kind of our eyes in the sky, if you will, a geosynchronous to make sure people aren't doing bad things up there, was, was a great step toward letting adversaries, potential adversaries, know that we're watching. Well, and, and uh, I think we're now understanding we have to expand that to other domains. So, you know, uh, the fact that we have now said we're developing a, a ground-moving target indication from space mm -hmm. uh, that tells folks, you know, yes, absolutely, we will understand what's going on in the space domain and attribute it, but we will observe and track and monitor. And if need be, that will be part of a warfighting enterprise that people understand that it's not just in space, but there's soon to be nowhere on the globe where we won't be able to see, sense, monitor, and take action as required. Great. And if required. Great. Well, I want to talk a little more about GMTI later, but let me close out the the domain awareness with uh, um, cislunar um, and beyond, if you will. I mean, even out to Lagrange points, if that's beyond cislunar, I'm not sure. But um, what, what do you see your role there? And is there opportunity to partner with NASA um, when you consider that they're going to be sending humans to the surface of the moon? And certainly, one would think they'd be interested in traffic management, if nothing else, uh, in the future. There, uh, there is. And, uh that partnership has already begun. Mm -hmm. um, we absolutely believe, you know, our role is space domain awareness, and that starts well starts at sea level. That's not really space, but starts as low as as in essence satellites can operate, and then goes to infinity. And as um, as the human race continues to expand out into the solar system and beyond, first the moon and beyond, we believe our responsibility is understand what's happening in the domain. Um, well, we've done a couple of things right now. Um, it's absolutely vital that we understand everything that's happening as it applies to near Earth. I'll say, you know, up and around geosynchronous orbit mm -hmm. and below, but rapidly expanding out into uh, lunar space. Um, uh, space Operations Command has established the 19th Space Defense Squadron, specifically focused on learning and understanding and growing into the space domain awareness mission for cislunar. Uh, the 18th SDS does it for near Earth, um, and now they're doing it for space. They've, they've, they're working with NASA in that regard. They're working with universities and institutions. They're working with some commercial operators. And as we get ready, the IFRL is in the final stages of putting together a, a sensor that we're going to fly in cislunar space here later in the decade. Uh, we recognize that's our responsibility, and we will step up to it. At the same time, we're talking with NASA about how do you navigate around the moon, and do we have a responsibility there? How should we communicate, and, and how do we make sure that we mm -hmm. can and they can effectively? So we absolutely see responsibilities there. We think uh, civil and commercial space will lead us back to the moon in a big way. It's our job to understand how we contribute there, what the national security implications are, and meet our goals. Great. Well, we talked about um, 
the avoiding the space Pearl Harbor, but you, know, you could I could see where you could get to a point of tension with an adversary where you, you know your danger close to something happening, and but still there's someone has to be a first mover, and uh, and I we hear discussions about the first mover advantage, particularly in this domain, uh, where, where someone could uh, gain an upper hand, and. We've also talked about deterrence here today. We've talked about attribution. We've talked about making the architecture tougher to defeat completely, so it's going to survive a first strike. Are there are there any other strategies or concepts that or capabilities you're thinking about fielding to both enhance deterrence, but also if deterrence fail, fails to neutralize the first mover advantage? I, I would say um, uh, distribution and proliferation in all of its elements. Right, we we certainly think about proliferated our architectures uh, in a very narrow sense as to you know large numbers of satellites perhaps in one orbital regime. The first thing you do is is distribute those capabilities ac uh, across multiple regi regimes, which means that an adversary, if they're going to attack you in space, has to have a very sophisticated and and synchronized means of attacking. That's the first thing. The second is. Um, that, that you look at ways to augment and or perform the mission in other domains, right? It's not just that we can do certain things from space. There's an aspect to doing it in, in, uh, in the air domain, perhaps uh, maritime domain, cyberspace, such that it's not just space that is, is the way by which missions are executed. You then bring in allies and partners and their capabilities so that the, the political and diplomatic implications and, and complications uh, add to that deterrent effect. And then finally, perhaps augmentation like commercial services and capabilities uh, like Mike Goodline and the Space Systems Command has, has really pursued with the recent establishment or, or, or evolution of the commercial space office. Mm -hmm. So when you really do think about proliferation and diversity, it's not just number of satellites. It's, it's multiple orbital regimes, it's multiple domains, it's multiple friends and partners, multiple ways of, of doing it such that it becomes such a complicated problem. An adversary looks and says, um, even if I execute the way I want to, I'm unlikely to have the desired effect. Okay, very good. Um, let me shift to counter space activities. Um, we didn't ask for a conflict to extend into space, but our adversaries have moved in that direction. They've made arguably decisive moves to field offensive capabilities, and some of which we've talked about already. Um, Chief Salzman speaks about balancing the need to confront irresponsible adversary behaviors while still ensuring the domain remains available. Um, can you discuss some of the requirements or capabilities or strategy that would help keep this balance? Well, uh, the first is definitely, um, uh, as we discussed before, deterrence based on a whole host of things, one being uh, proliferation in all its yeah. forms. So let, let's uh, assume deterrence fails. I mean, yeah. that, that's worst case. Right? Well, um, well, and I would say the second is, and, and this is where we've spent a lot of time working with the, uh, the, the other services in particular, is um, for them to understand, first of all, their reliance on space and um, augmentation and alternatives um, and how to ensure that they can continue their operations, whether it's short-term or long-term, in a degraded or denied space environment. Now, I'm, I'm not one who believes that degradation or denial of use of space will occur broadly and over a long period of time. If so, U.S. Space Force has failed in its, in its roles and responsibilities. But understanding where the reliance is, um, how they might operate in that environment in a degraded sense um, is the first piece of it. The second is um, just as adversaries analyze our systems and capabilities in ways to deny and defeat them, uh, we're doing the same every single day. With adversary space capabilities, uh, I would say the difference is uh, we recognize both in terms of stewardship of the domain and if you look at cost and complexity, um, the types of things we see our adversaries pursuing today are not, not only not war-winning capabilities, but they are likely to have devastating impacts on the environment that, that will be harmful to the use of space for decades and perhaps centuries to come. Okay, well, um, so let me paint a scenario for you. Okay. They, an adversary does move first and start to attack the, our enabling, key enabling capabilities. And, and 
whether they're effective or not. Worst case, they'd be effective. Right. But um, they continue to maintain their capabilities that allow them to track U.S. fleets moving westward across the Pacific, and then consequently or subsequently target those fleets effectively because of their space capabilities. Does it make sense to make sure that they don't have those space capabilities in time of conflict to protect our own forces that operate in the domain and eliminate their dependence, which they come to depend on these capabilities as well? Uh, it does. It does. Um, I would also stipulate as we look at the proliferation of space capabilities, um, ours, our partners and allies, potential adversaries, uh, but third-party nations and, frankly, commercial, um, that it will be increasingly difficult to deny some level of use of space to an adversary in conflict. And so I think it's incumbent on us, and, and I think the department has begun to head down that path, is where we understand the capabilities that, that we, or the, the threats that we face in that regard. And it's incumbent on us to develop new operating concepts, capabilities, and operational plans that recognize that and make sure that we can fight and win regardless of the challenge we face today. Certainly, we're going to need to disrupt, degrade, deny, deceive space capabilities certain times and places. Um, if you, I mean, just look at sheer numbers in the domain to think that 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 it's going to be a huge that you're going to eliminate a, a wide swath of those capabilities for a long period of time is going to be very difficult. You just have to develop capabilities, develop concepts and ways of fighting that recognize that we will probably be able to, to disrupt, degrade, and deny for some period of time, and during that time frame operate effectively to set the stage for the next series of operations and activities that will allow us to ultimately win. Okay, thanks. Let's go back to GMTI. Okay. Um, so we're retiring the, the Air Force is retiring the Joint Stars. Uh, and in the Joint Stars is just a platform. The, the heart and soul of it is the back end where you actually do operational battle management with people trained that know how to do that. And they're not, today, they're not guardians. In the future, the sensor will be in space and not in an aircraft. Have you worked with the Air Force and thought through some of the concepts on how one, you maintain the talent pool that sits in the back of JSTARS today, which classically in, in the budgetary process, when you retire iron, you retire people. Right. Um, that's just the way that the world works. But in this case, it'll be important to retain that talent set. And so the concept of operation for and the personnel management for that mission set going forward as GMTI moves into the space domain. Right. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. And it's not just GMTI, sooner or later we will face the same with AMTI, AMTI right? right? The Air Force is going to battle manager. AWACS, right. um, you know, an interim capability in E7. Mm -hmm. um, and so you had mentioned Secretary Kendall earlier. Mm -hmm. One of the things, you know, one of the many things that makes him unique and special is uh, seeing that, foreseeing that in, 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 in his OI work and in the things that we need to do uh, to implement the national defense strategy is he already has us driving very hard on how are we going to battle manage these capabilities. And then the good news is both the Air Force and the Space Force work for him. And so a lot of his focus has been on that advanced battle management, not just the system, which is really a system of systems, but um, uh, he's appointed uh, Brigadier General Luke Cropsey to lead that force. Now, Luke is the what I would call is the mostly the acquisition lead, but they have a, a partner uh, in a, in the ABMS cross-functional team that's looking at the operational concepts. Where will we do battle management for MTI, for GMTI? Mm -hmm. Don't know yet. We're still early in that process. I think we have a little bit of time, but he and the Department of the Air Force very much recognize this isn't just about those sensors and moving those sensors to space, mm -hmm. that the battle management aspect of it is as critical. And uh, uh, even if with the world's greatest sensors, if you do, don't do that effectively, we're not going to be So um, we've got, he's got some, we've got some experiments lined up, some demonstrations. And, and uh, I think as long as he's in the seat, we're going to be moving forward with that. So the task has been assigned. The task has been assigned. That's good. That's and, first step always. Yeah. And, 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 
uh, task has been assigned and we're seeing early progress. A lot of work to do. Great. But early Great. Um, it used to be, not long ago, if you said reconnaissance and space in the same sentence, what followed was the NRO saying that's our job. And then came the commercial world. And suddenly pictures are being taken from space by commercial assets. Signals are being connect, collected from space by commercial assets today. Um, there, it's a growing business, and it's both in you know to support uh, commercial sectors and commercial customers, but also the Department of Defense, and we're perhaps seeing that more and more being demonstrated in uh, Eastern Europe right now, and how they can help uh, in various ways. So, and in the past, um, if, you look, if we look back in history, Desert Storm, Bosnia, Kosovo operations, even all the way up to Iraqi freedom. Um, and operations in Afghanistan. Although the National Reconnaissance Office provides exquisite overhead imagery in support of their principal customers, the NGA and the NSA, um, they've never been able to deliver timely enough imagery, uh, mostly because of process, but also because of limited assets and also because of priority. They are a National Reconnaissance Office, not a Title X Warfighter Reconnaissance Office, if you will. Um, so they've never been able to really uh, demonstrate the ability to provide the type of space-based reconnaissance on the timelines uh, necessary to affect operational plans at a COCOM or certainly not tactical operations, which would, would require exceptionally uh, rapid dissemination of data to warfighters at the tip of the spear. Um, they're absolutely critical for indications and warning. They're absolutely critical for the technical intelligence you talked about that we're now focusing on at NASIC or the Space Intelligence Center. So this is not to in any way criticize what they do for the nation. But um, what do you see going forward as far as the Space Force role in filling the requirement that I think exists today, would argue exists today, that COCOMs have to get particularly in areas where they can't have long-range air assets getting them the information that they need to affect their operational plans or react to the adversary. What do you see a Space Force's role filling that need? So uh, multifaceted. Yeah. yeah. The very first is um, uh, in summer of 2021, uh, we were assigned the role of the integrator for DOD joint space requirements. So that's the first part of the process is what are the war fighting requirements mm -hmm. for space from space. And the very first missionary that we tackled was ISR and, 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 and putting together the need statement for all of that. And so, so it's our job to make sure that we capture what those uh, war fighting requirements are. You can call it IS, you know, certainly for ISR, but also for, as we talked about, uh, tactical targeting of monitoring, sensing, and tactical targeting associated with a war fighting need. That's the first. The second is uh, actually the uh, Space War Fighting Analysis Center and the, for the design work that they've done, the force design work as we've called it, um, specifically focused on GMTI. It was their analysis that drove how we wanted to make that investment. Um, and in fact, it was the Space Force recommendation adopted by the DOD that um, that the, the National Reconnaissance Office be the acquiring mm -hmm. agent for it. Um, and I would tell you that the, that a, a partnership that has been longstanding and strong has gotten stronger, especially with the leadership of uh, Dr. Scalise and Troy Mink. And, and as you know, we have a Space Force deputy in there, Chris Povac. Um, they, I, I, they would say two things, and, and I agree with them. The first is they're not just an intelligence organization. They are a DOD organization as well. And I think they fully recognize and understand that they have to step up to a new tactical role in that regard. They have demonstrated not just their willingness, but their ability to do so. Um, and right now, first of all, uh, the DOD and the DNI at the secretary level are working through the difference between, let's call it, uh, national reconnaissance, strategic reconnaissance, and what warfighters need to prosecute. Uh, military operations, um, and and uh, General Saltzman and Chris Scalise are also working through how the um, how the NRO and Space Force might work together, how we can ensure that the relationship between combatant commands to include 
space force components, commands, perhaps uh, representatives there can ensure we're delivering what the combat what the combat commanders need. So I would say they have grown and evolved and recognized um, just as well as we have that they have responsibilities that are not traditional that are not traditionally focused. And I'm confident that working with them, we can meet those needs for for timely direct, not just direct to combat commands, but in some cases perhaps direct to weapons when necessary, mm -hmm. updates to allow for timely targets. Well, that's the goal, but at the end of the day, it comes down to a tasking authority. And okay. um, who, is, so when a, a combatant commander is in a conflict, he turns to his components yep. and tasks them to do things. And in this particular uh, mission area, he can't stand to be racked and stacked against a national intelligence need. And in fact, the tasking authority one could envision either would be at the space component at Indo-PACOM, which just stood up, or withheld at U.S. Space Command and used in a supporting supported role for export to the, combat, the engaged combatant commander. Um, have you worked through that concept? Uh uh, so I would say at some level, yes, I need to be a little careful because the, mm -hmm. the, D, the, you know, the two cabinet level secretaries, the Secretary of Defense and Director of National Intelligence are still working through those between us. But I would tell you um, in a study that they had recently commissioned that's coming to closure, uh, both understand very clearly that, uh, that war fighting systems require, need to be allocated and controlled through DOD and uh, uh, military processes and both are fully prepared to do that. Okay, that's that's great. Um, let's switch back to commercial. You know, I brought up the, the fact that there's the Maxars of the world, this the, the Hawkeye 360s of the world, etc. Um, they um, one of the frustrations I've heard expressed from some of these companies is that the only contracts they can get with the government are through the NGA. And certainly COCOMs don't have any money to fund the flow of that commercial information to their headquarters. So it would seem to me, logically, that the Space Force should budget for um, the, some kind of infrastructure to start using and exercising the use of commercial assets today at the COCOM level. Um, it kind of falls in line with, you know, buy what we can, build what we must motto. Here, here's something that's readily available for purchase that could be put through those military processes you just described and exercised today routinely as we wait for GMTI, which is gonna be acquired and, and operated by uh, Space Force, uh, well, acquired with the LPNRO, which is fantastic, uh, and but operated by the Space Force, et cetera. So thoughts on you know bridging the gap between actually having stuff on orbit and what's available today to rent it. Um, so we do have, uh, uh, we have a, a pilot of our own we're developing, and, and there are a couple others specifically focused, not just on what I'll say commercial space in general, but specifically as it relates to commercial ISR. Uh, we're also in conversation with the NGA. The, the NGA uh, believes, and has stated very clearly, they believe it's their responsibility. Um, and we're open in the sense that if they can demonstrate through their processes, and we've given this charge to our combat commanders, starting with uh, Tony Massillo mm -hmm. out in Indopeca, is, you know, he is, his job is to understand, advocate for, and deliver space capabilities to his combat commanders. Uh, in this regard, if we can use NGA means and mechanisms to be able to deliver those capabilities, what they need in a timely fashion to include commercial ISR, because, because today the NGA has very large commercial contracts. If they can if they can demonstrate responsiveness and timeliness and meet the combat command's needs through their mechanism, we're more than ready to say that's the process we'll use. But but let me be clear: if in fact we cannot, we believe that we are charged and prepared to deliver directly through our own contracting mechanisms and our own means can be prepared to do that, but we recognize the NGA believes it's their role and we're more than prepared to have them demonstrate their ability to do Okay, so I'm standing by to see. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, well, I count at least four growth mission areas for the Space Force. Um, Just four? 
Well, at <laughs> least, yeah, oh, yeah, no, at least, yeah. Certainly, yeah. you know, expanding your space situational awareness to cislunar yeah. and enhancing what what we have today, Absolutely. so there can be no surprise and there's attribution uh, available to enhance deterrence. There's growing um, space reconnaissance capabilities and the infrastructure required to do it, command and control personnel that know how to task, follow follow the orders of the right. battalion commander and Absolutely. do all that. Um, you've got to develop and field capabilities that will hold at risk adversary uh, capabilities in space, whether they're in space or uh, attacking their uh, architecture in other ways. And you've got to now operate a proliferated series of constellations and fight them in a defensive capacity to stay alive. All of this seems to say that this is an incredible growth industry, not only from the hardware perspective required to do that, but from the manpower perspective required. Yet at the same time where you are asked to do all these things, um, the, the current um, deal that was struck between the administration and the Congress with three regard to the, the lending or the cap uh, limits growth in the Department of Defense budget to 1%, I believe, uh, per year for the, the next two years. So at a time when we need all this growth in space to counter an aggressive adversary in the Western Pacific, um, you're essentially, based on inflation, going to be losing budgetary capability on the order of 6 to 7% a year rather than growing to meet these needs. How are you thinking about this challenge? Well, uh, uh, first, let me say we have been we have been uh, blessed in the sense that um, now through two administrations, both uh, houses of Congress, both sides of the aisle, and and inside the Department of Defense, uh, um, our national leaders have recognized the need to resource the Space Force, and not really resource the Space Force, but the space missions required for mm -hmm. the nation to be secure and defense. And so the growth we've seen through 2025, you know, double-digit percentage-wise year over year and every year, I think, is, is certainly unprecedented this time frame for any other, any other service. And so we've been, we've been fortunate and blessed in that regard. Um, uh, if, in fact, we're going to grow effectively in a timely fashion in those, these missions, you would argue that that trend needs to conti continue, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know the 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 budget deal and the outlook for defense spending is is probably not the same it's been over the last few years and so uh, any number of things might happen but um, um, either we you know the department may need to look at its uh, priorities for for various investments um, or we will have to throttle the growth that we have seen and and the delivery of capabilities and it's it will simply be incumbent on us to Make sure that our leaders inside the Department of Defense and the White House and Congress understand the risk we'll take mm -hmm. if, in fact, we can cannot con continue that. Okay, thank you. It's a tough one. It and, is. You know, it's not it quite. Is. It's not quite sequestration, but pretty darn close. Um, and those were tough years for for the department to be sure. Um, commercial launch. You know, this was we talked about this earlier. It's really the, the return of commercial launch to the United States. Uh, dominance, and uh, certainly because of private industries and, and entrepreneurs who have stepped in and, and developed some great capabilities, um, and it's it's, it's got to be starting to put some pressure on our space launch uh, wings and organizations, infrastructure, and other things that will again a bill to be paid to require growth and sustainment uh, of those capabilities. Do you see opportunities where uh, where some of that cost could be shared by the commercial providers? Uh, and and partnering with them to make it a win-win. We do, we do. Um, uh, I would say today we're probably now at the extreme edge of the launch rate that we can support mm -hmm. with the existing range infrastructure and investments. Um, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I'm not sure we would have foreseen this kind of growth. But uh, in the 24 budget, uh, there was a, about $1.3 billion dollars allocated to make sure that we can make investments on the range to keep pace with the forecast growth first mm -hmm. off you know some of those uh, uh, investments that went toward autonomous flight safety so that you don't have the 
the manpower and infrastructure requirement just to prepare a vehicle for flight, let alone actually execute flight operations. Um, some of the ways that we've moved to uh, digital aspects of, of the range have helped a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but now it looks like we've been, we've been trying for about a decade or more to get Congress to allow us through legislation to accept uh, a contractor and commercial investment um, for indirect costs, not just re reimbursement for direct costs, to be able to, to upgrade and maintain infrastructure. It, it looks like this year it's seeing, you know, it, it has not, we have not seen much interest and we have tried for about 10 years to get that legislation in place. Hmm. Uh, you know, it looks like there's interest this year and it may actually make it into legislation such that commercial companies can provide indirect investment and that not only helps And they're them. willing to do that. They are they're, absolutely. they're interested in doing it. Well, that's they great. have, yeah. those commercial companies, especially those that see um, see their future in not just national security launch, but commercial launch, have already expressed, well, in fact, have asked to do it. And unfortunately, we've said no, have come forward with their checkbook. And we said no, because legally we weren't allowed to. Send them my way. <laughs> but but I think finally, uh, through legislation, we're going to get the, the opportunity. It would be a win-win, wouldn't it? it? Would. I mean, as, as we increase launch rate capacity, it serves them as well. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, I could go on all, all morning with you, General Thompson, but we, we do have a commitment to our audience here. And so okay. we've come to that point in our program, ladies and gentlemen, where I'm going to ask Aiden, who's off screen, but has been taking your questions through the chat and various methods, and please continue to send them. In, uh, we'll, we'll ask the questions that we've heard from the audience. I'd ask the audience to be sure to remember to unmute your mic and also to identify yourself and any organization that you might be representing. So, with that, Aiden, I'll turn it over to you for our first question from the audience. Thanks, General Chilton. First, we have a question from a listener from Colorado Springs. The question is whether is a critical part to operational planning and operations themselves, along with resource protection? The Defense Meteorological Satellites, DMSP, are well past their lifespans and could fail any day. First, how important is weather today to the warfighter, especially in the Indo-Pacific? And second, how important is the follow-on program, the Electro-Optical Infrared Weather Satellite Program, um, or EWS, staying on track? Yeah, so uh, uh, first, uh, um... Weather forecasting is absolutely critical to, to our warfighters. You know, you cannot be a global force if you don't understand the operating environment you're headed into and that you're going to face anywhere in the world on any given day. Uh, so it is vital. Um, DMSP has been a tremendous program for many years and over various fits and starts. Uh, we've had some challenges in replacing it, but both but not just the electro-optical follow-on, but the microwave follow-on right now. Both are in good shape. They're performing. They're fully funded. Um, and we are looking at, just like we are in other areas, um, following those two programs, which are still, what you know, my words, unique, uh, uh, small numbers of satellites doing weather forecasting. We are rapidly looking at ways uh, to do, to, to, to perform this mission in a, in the future in a proliferated sense with with you know large large numbers of satellites already uh, in orbit and forecast that have uh, size weight and power available to put weather sensors on looking at ways to do that we're also looking at whether or not uh, weather as a service is the way to go so the two programs that we need right now to continue to provide those capabilities are in a in a good position and we're looking at ways to do this mission differently in the in in the future that will be as effective and perhaps even more effective in terms of real time forecasting for uh, warfighters and and for the nation as a whole. Great. Next, we have David Rosa from Air and Space Magazine. Hi there. Can you guys hear me okay? Loud and clear. Great, thank you. And thank you so much, uh, General, for uh, chatting with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, my question is on the uh, personnel side. I, can you please describe a few of the uh, specific factors that are slowing down the re release of uh, Guardian promotions lists this year? And um, I guess, what does the Space Force need to uh, mitigate those factors uh, in the future? 
So uh, um, uh, actually, we're, we're relatively pleased with the promotion rates that we've seen and the opportunity for guardians. Uh, really, the, the biggest factors that we have are, are twofold. The first is um, we continue to grow uh, rapidly. Uh, N-strength, although N-strength numbers are small by most other service uh, standards, we continue to see growth of about 10% per year and really could continue at that rate into the future if, in fact, we could have uh, find enough uh, qualified folks. But uh, um, uh, the promotion rates are, it's, it's hard. We don't have long-term metrics for guardians, but as we look back at promotion rates as they existed back when many of us were part of the Air Force, I think our rates in that regard are at or, or higher than that period of time. Um, the other thing we look at is uh, retention rates, right? Because oftentimes retention rate is a signal of how satisfied military members are with the jobs they're doing, the opportunities they're presented, and, and generally um, uh, their experience in military service. And, and again, it's still a little bit early, but we are still seeing historically high retention rates among our guardians, all of which tells us that for now, we believe we're in good shape in that regard. Certainly one of the areas I think that helps retention is when people feel like what they're doing is important and making a difference. And I can't imagine not having that spirit in the Guardian community today given the threat. That, that's absolutely true. And in fact, we're, we are concerned. We have been concerned for several years because of the, you know, the growth in the commercial sector. And, and certainly that's exciting work. And, and frankly, they're likely to be able to, to garner higher salaries in that sector, but we have not seen the exodus we have feared. You know, a couple of small concerns here and there. So, so we believe that bodes well, not just for us, but the entire military, civil, and commercial sectors, which all of which I think are important to security and, and prosperity. Well, and as a former, former Astro instructor from the Air Force Academy, you mentioned the right talent. Yeah. The number of Astro majors at the Air Force Academy has skyrocketed after the stand up the Space Force. So hopefully that pipeline won't dry up it, on you. It is. And, and um, we are growing and emphasizing the need for and opportunity for our guardians to get advanced degrees. You know, absolutely. Uh, we want that, you know, in, in officers, we want that undergraduate degree and certainly encourage enlisted members mm -hmm. to do the same. But increasingly, helping folks understand that continuing education, knowledge, growth, and education in ways that matter to the, the Space Force are a key part of who and what we need going forward. Great. Peyton, we're ready for the next question. We have a question from Sangman Lee, a reporter from Radio Free Asia. He writes, Secretary Austin and the two ministers of South Korea and Japan last month recognized trilateral efforts to activate a data sharing mechanism to exchange real-time missile warning data before the end of this year to improve all countries' concerns, ability to detect and assess missile launches by the DPRK. I've heard that Space Forces in Korea is responsible for this. Can you talk specifically about how Space Forces in Korea will play a role in operation, operationalizing this trilateral mechanism? Uh, sure, so uh, we have actually had arrangements in place with many na nations for decades to provide that early warning through various means. Uh, including Japan and South Korea, the challenge has been uh, uh, that those mechanisms are relatively cumbersome and and uh, um, and can be in certain instances slower than required, especially when you look at times of flight for ballistic missiles uh, from North Korea to to you know to places in South Korea and Japan. And so, so part of the key is in the design and uh, uh, fielding of our missile warning missile track uh, architecture is to ensure that the ground system allows for um, that information needed by uh, our forces, by our friend, by friendly forces and forces, and also uh, um, the nations involved is quickly and readily accessible. And it's the job of the component out there to under to make sure that those friendly forces and countries understand the architecture we're using, where the data is going to be, and the mechanisms by which they can gain access to it and quickly understand the implications to their forces and their nation. I imagine the willingness has always been there. Uh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just we've 
the architecture was put in place in the 1980s, and it's gotten it's gotten better, but it's still not what I would call 21st century Got architecture. It. Thanks. And Thanks. it's really important to get that architecture in place, Great. especially as as we look increasingly at not just missile warning, but missile defense. Mm -hmm. Great. Next question. Uh, we have a question from Christian Davenport from the Washington Post. Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear, Christian. Go ahead, please. Thanks. Um, yeah, General, thanks for doing this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, we've heard a lot of talk about this, the Space Force as a mobility and logistics command and uh, a lot of these sort of futuristic programs in terms of the cargo delivery, you know, leaving uh, assets in orbit that could then be delivered, uh, refueling capabilities, cargo de uh, uh, delivery. Um, how do those fit into the Space Force's mission and, and what sort of priority are they getting right now? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Christian. I would say right now, most of the work in that regard needs to be uh, intellectual understanding what the concepts are, what the possibilities are, perhaps some analytical work that demonstrates the value. There's no question that we see a, a future for in-space mobility and logistics. For example, uh, two years ago, we signed out a, a, a capability document that said, we intend to ask uh, the commercial sector to provide in-space refueling capability for our satellites. We we would like to see a commercial capability that might be able to come along and extend the life of, of some of our larger spacecraft, perhaps up to and including, can we rely on them for disposal once these things have reached end of life? There's a whole host of other ideas and concepts and potential capabilities. What we really need to do is understand, have the intellectual work done uh, and the analytic work done that says, what do those concepts look like? How might they be a value and what's the value proposition, whether it's cost or capability or perhaps survivability or mitigation against threats? That's where the bulk of the work needs to be done in a military sense before we go much further than we know we're going to rely on them for, for movement, perhaps for life extension and absolutely for refueling capability. But we're certainly open and prepared to adopt additional capabilities as they make sense for uh, the missions that we perform and the ways we operate. Is that analysis, would that be done by the SWAC? As um, in some cases, yes, mm -hmm. but actually um, uh, some of that early work is being done by the Assured Access to Space Office. Uh, uh, Major General Steve Purdy and his team down at, primarily at, at Cape Canaveral, but other places, but they're doing some of the early concept work. They will marry up with the SWAC once we have some no kidding hard concepts that, re that require analysis that may deliver course design. Great. So, thanks, Chris. Next question. Uh, we have a question from Stephen Clark from Spaceflight Now. He asks, is the Space Force planning any more missions with the X-37B orbital test vehicle? If so, when might the next launch likely be? And can you just more broadly discuss how the program has evolved in its both capabilities and mission focus in the decade plus it's been flying? So the answer is yes. The answer to the first question is yes. The second is stand by for coming announcements. Um, and the third is it has actually, so it has been a remarkable test bed and experimentational experimentation vehicle for many years. Um, as we have understood the value of that, we have grown uh, its mission uh, set in terms of uh, the types of technologies that we're testing, some of the operation, some associated experiments with operational concepts. Um, it has proven itself to be a remarkably flexible and versatile platform. And I would tell you, you're only beginning to see some of the exciting things that we have planned for the X-37. Great. I think we have time for one more question, Aiden. Great. Uh, Michael asks, do you envision the DoD ranges being connected for planning for from a planning and acquisition purposes to NASA and commercial ranges to maximize total range use? And if so, what hurdles would the US Space Force currently have in implementing such a structure? Uh, so we have a close relationship so we have a close relationship with NASA today at our existing 
launch ranges, uh, Cape Canaveral and at Vandenberg Space Force Base, and certainly commercial customers there. Um, we're seeing increasingly spaceports and the desire for in the um, in the commercial sector the use of other launch ranges. I know that's part of the uh, uh, FF. I'm sorry, the FAA Department of Transportation, Department of Commerce, growing in that regard. Uh, today, um, we're not other than some conceptual work. We're not working to expand our specific oversight and operation of ranges, although. Um, we would certainly look to potentially use some of those others in the future. We're certainly interested and concerned about uh, how our launch ranges need to grow to support not just national security space missions, but NASA and civil missions and commercial missions going forward. There has always been a close relationship there and will be, I think, for years to come. But watching others as they develop launch ranges in other parts of the nation and space for spaceports, I think our position is that's great for the nation. It's certainly something we may look to leverage in the future, but for now, in our sense, we'll focus on the Eastern Range and the Western Range and let the rest of the sector carry the development for those other launch ranges. Terrific, well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time here today. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's been a great discussion. General Thompson, I wanna thank you again, sir, for joining us. And again, congratulate you on a marvelous career, and thank you for your dedicated service to our country and, and the, the heavy lifting you've done over the last eight years, certainly, to bring us to where we are today with the Space Force and a team of guardians dedicated to accomplishing the missions this country needs to have done for national security. And so from all of us here at Mitchell Space, we want to wish all our viewers a great Space Power Day. <laughs>